The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. Great to see everybody this morning. We're continuing our study through the uh, lifetime of Paul and the teaching of Paul, and we're in the middle of uh, his letters to the church at Thessalonica. It's fascinating to me as two of the three earliest letters he wrote that he spends so much ink on the end times. Uh, And it's interesting to me that we still have fascinating interest in it today. Uh, The last time I had lunch with Greg, we were commenting on uh, preaching topics uh, to do in the Sunday morning service. Uh, and, and particularly topics that will pack out the service. And I said, well, you know, for your next series, you could do one on sex or the end times. And he looked at me and he said, are you trying to get me fired? And uh, so, but it's true. It's been true for years. Uh, if you do a study on Revelation, you get a huge crowd or in the end times. Uh, otherwise, you get a mediocre crowd. And I used to teach the Sunday night service at Second Baptist with my friend, Dr. Deloach. Uh, if we did a study on anything, we'd have a couple of hundred. We did Revelation, we'd have a thousand on Sunday night. Uh, that's, to me, incredible because people don't go to church anymore on Sunday nights. We did something on Revelation, we'd pack it out. So uh, there's fascination in it. I've slowed down uh, in the study of Thessalonians because of that. And uh, this Sunday, or th- this lesson, will kind of wrap up his direct teaching on the end times. Although our next lesson is going to cover uh, his advice on what to do next. In other words, he's taught us about the end times. Now, what do we do until then? How do we live knowing the end times are coming? So that's kind of the end of chapter two and all of chapter three. Uh, on your outline, uh, I've got two typos. Uh, at the very top, I said it's Second Thessalonians two. And then below that, when I gave you your actual verses, I put a typo, and instead of two, I put a three. So uh, we're in chapter two of Second Thessalonians this week, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy it because most of our discussion is going to be about the Antichrist, which there's always great questions about. And I'll put it all into context and give you a, a, a biblical a, a view across the Bible and then a deep drill down on chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. Now, I want to put all of this in context, which is really just a review of the last two lessons on this, and we started with the focus of the problems at the church at Thessalonica. My picture up here uh, is the one I showed you when I taught you about Paul's trip to Thessalonica. This is the remains of the very first oldest church there. Uh, What exists there was built hundreds of years after that, but the foundation and that little circular pool is the oldest known baptistry in Christianity. It's the foundation of the original baptistry, and it was a couple of hundred years after Paul, but it's the only remnant we have of the original church building at Thessalonica, Uh, and I just thought it was a great little flashback here because our problem with the church at Thessalonica was they thought because the times they live in were bad, they were living in the Great Tribulation. Daniel had talked about it. Christ talked about it. In our Bible, it's Matthew 24. They knew those times were coming, so they thought because they were being abused as Christians, that meant the tribulation was here. Paul says, no, 
abused by men is not abused by the Antichrist or, or Satan himself. And so there's a difference uh, that's not the day of the Lord. And so his, he was dealing with ignorance in the church. He then dealt with their second question, which was, if people have already died, have they missed the rapture that we are going to experience that Christ talked about when he talked about the end times? And the point that he makes in 1 Thessalonians in his first letter to them was that, no, you have not missed it yet. The dead in Christ rise first, and then those alive meet him in or meet him in the sky. And so the the dead have not missed it. And so his uh, testimony about the rapture was, uh, know that it's still yet to come. And then we talked about uh, what his rapture looked like, how it involves a, a joining of those who have died before us. It involves a joining with Christ himself. And then regarding the day of the Lord, we talked about the fact in the Old Testament that 17 different books of the Old Testament comment on the coming day of judgment. The fact that God will deal with evil people and evil decisions and those that have hurt us uh, at a time of reckoning. And so those 17 books in the Old Testament talk about a coming judgment. And then in the New Testament, it continues with his uh, comments, Christ's teaching about uh, the end times and the coming judgment. And we answered the question last week about the judgment of believers. Do believers have to account for every sin they've ever committed? And we talked about the Bema seat, which he uh, uh, wrote uh, to the church at Corinth, uh, based on the Bema seat they have in town that you can still see the foundations of. And it was the equivalent of where they would give out the gold medals or the silver medals or the bronze medals at the Olympics. It was a place of reward. And we talked about how as Christians, our sins have already been forgiven. There's not an accounting of our sins in Instead, there is a reward with some people getting tremendous rewards, some people getting much less rewards for what they do once they become believers. And so the idea of the believer's judgment is the Bema seat. We're going to go much deeper on that concept and the other types of judgment that exist once we get into First and Second Corinthians. Uh, but on your outline, I gave you the two main verses there. Then last week, as we ended 1 Thessalonians and started 2 Thessalonians, we looked at comments regarding the Great Tribulation. He does a little bit deeper dive than he did earlier on, and he talks about the secrecy of the times, the times that run from the rapture for seven years for the second coming, and then the thousand years when Christ physically and literally reigns on the earth. That timeline of the end times uh, is the secrecy of not knowing when it's going to start. Christ said, only the Father knows. Uh, we talked about the suddenness of his return, that it's going to be like a thief in the night that's very quick and unexpected. It's going to happen when nobody expects it. So if anybody ever gives you a date for the rapture, that's the time you know it's not going to happen because nobody knows. Uh, we talked about the safety of believers. That's the whole point of the rapture, that we don't have to go through the tribulation. We study it to know what's going to happen. We studied his motivation to share with other people uh, why they should turn to Christ to escape that, uh, but all believers are going to have safety. We talked about seriousness for all because it's going to be horrible. 
We're going to go into deeper depth on that this week and what the Antichrist is going to do. Uh, and then in 2 Thessalonians, uh, he starts and he writes in a second letter to them a little bit more depth. And he gives us the reason for the great tribulation is that the God of love is not a God of love if it does not also encompass justice. And so as bad as it sounds and as much as people want to pretend it's not going to happen, God cannot be God unless there is judgment for everything that's happened that is evil and a rejection of God. The time of the tribulation we talked about is going to be seven years. The Old Testament makes that clear in Daniel. The New Testament makes that clear uh, in the book of the Revelation. And so the time period is specifically identified as seven years. The recipients of the great tribulation are those that as of the time of the rapture have not yet become Christians. At the end of the lesson, we're going to talk about those that can have the opportunity to become saved during the tribulation period because there's some big questions around that and I'm going to end the lesson on that but the recipients of the tribulation are going to be those that do not believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior uh, at uh, the time of the rapture and scripture makes it very clear it's not uh, the the view of current uh, popular theologians that everyone's loved by God and everybody's going to be in heaven. That's not biblically supportable. Uh, it's limited to those who meet Jesus Christ in the sky because they recognize him as their Lord and Savior. The nature of the Great Tribulation is bad, very bad, and worse. Uh, it's a spectrum of bad that just is horrible from start to finish with the last three years being almost incomprehensible. And the results of the Great Tribulation are essentially a purging of Satan and his dominion and those who follow him culminating in the millennial reign of Christ when Satan's bound for a thousand years uh, and then uh, released one more time for final judgment. So with that little background, what Paul does is he just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's almost like he's answering questions that he's heard verbally, but he doesn't necessarily repeat them. We get an inference at what's causing this little deeper dive, and I'll touch on that, but he's addressing the issue of what he describes as the lawless one. And the issue of the lawless one is one of the multiple names in the, in the Bible for the Antichrist, the ruler that is going to rule the planet Earth during the tribulation period that is the antithesis in character. It's the antithesis of ideology. It's the antithesis of a belief in the creator Yahweh God. And the antithesis of all of those things of Jesus Christ is this man that Paul calls uh, the lawless one. Now, this is a guy that we think, with just a superficial uh, view of Scripture, comes from Revelation. And people would think, well, why would Paul's audience be hung up about this if John did not write the book of Revelation for another 40 years later? Well, if you know your Bible, that was clearly taught by Daniel, going back to Daniel chapter 9, there's actual multiple chapters in Daniel that deal with the Antichrist and the imagery that Daniel gives that's uh, very, very similar to Revelation, but it's explicit in Daniel 9.27. And then Jesus Christ, in what we call the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24, his preaching on the Mount of Olives about the end times, uh, also discusses this ruler that's going to be the antithesis of himself at the end times. So by the time this church exists, this tiny little group of believers in Thessalonica, they know Daniel, 
they know the words of Christ because of the Apostle Paul. They don't yet have the hard copy of Matthew, but Paul has taught them what Jesus taught his disciples. So they know all about the Antichrist coming. He writes the second letter of Thessalonians, what we call chapter 2, and then John does a deeper dive and does multiple chapters on him in the book of Revelation that we'll study at some point in the future. So this audience knows all about the Antichrist, and they've got questions. Because at the time, the question would have been, is the emperor in Rome who doesn't like us the Antichrist? So Paul's going to tackle that issue in what we call chapter 2. Now, I've got to digress for just a second and say this question of who is the Antichrist has permeated Christianity for 2,000 years. During the reign of Nero, everybody thought Nero was so wicked, Nero was the Antichrist. There are still people, I would call them conservative Christians today, that espouse the belief that Nero is the Antichrist. Uh, the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hennegraff, who has a nationwide show, has written books on this and says the Antichrist is Nero. It's not some governmental figure that's coming in the future. The problem with Hennegraff's view and anybody else that says the Antichrist was Nero is it makes the tribulation the last 2,000 years. It completely evaporates the idea of a rapture and says there's one return of Christ, and that's the second coming, and we all go up to meet him at the same time, and it just ignores massive parts of Scripture that talk about what happens during the tribulation. Because if Hennegraph is right, in the last 2,000 years uh, are the tribulation period, as a student of World War II, as a student of World War I, as a student of all the great wars of humanity, there's nothing close in human history that recounts what is described in the book of Revelation about the tribulation. So I can't take 2,000 years of recorded history, which I can study in tremendous depth, and overlay it and say, oh yeah, that's Revelation 9. Oh yeah, that's Revelation 13. You can't do it because it hasn't happened yet. It's a level of devastation, a level of judgment that as bad as human history has been doesn't come close. Now, it's fascinating to me that as long as I've been alive, I've heard debates about the Antichrist. And those debates existed long before any of us were alive. Because after the Nero debate, uh, during the uh, Crusades, the, the big debate was, is Muhammad the Antichrist? No. Uh, there was huge debates uh, starting in the 12th century when they started to rebel against uh, the corruption in the Catholic Church. Is the Pope the Antichrist? Uh, then you got into the Reformation period when it became a Protestant-Catholic split and pretty much the entire Protestant world said the papacy is the Antichrist. Then the Catholics said, no, the Antichrist is really Martin Luther. And so they spilled a whole bunch of ink pointing at each other, calling each other the Antichrist. Uh, and that's continued through the centuries. Just in my lifetime, uh, there's discussions when John Kennedy became the first Catholic uh, president. Uh, a lot of Protestants said Kennedy was the Antichrist. Nope, he wasn't. Uh, in my lifetime, there was discussion of um, various people in politics. During World War II, the debate about Hitler being the Antichrist, there was tremendous belief that Hitler was the Antichrist. And if it wasn't Hitler, it was Joseph Stalin. Uh, in more recent era, there was uh, a whole lot of people that thought Barack Obama's the Antichrist. Uh, Democrats today think Donald Trump is the Antichrist. 
uh, tons of people alive today still believe the papacy is the Antichrist. And uh, I particularly disagreed with that on John Paul II because John Paul II's writings are really conservative evangelical in terms of what it takes to be saved. And so I have a lot of respect for John Paul II. Uh, and I may have less respect for others in the papacy, uh, but I still don't believe that there's evidence that that's the Antichrist. Uh, maybe someday in the future, but not today. And so we're going to discuss this issue of what are the signs of the lawless one? How do you know when someone steps on the world stage, you can point to him and say, that's definitively the Antichrist. Paul gives us six signs that when you get to the six signs, there's no debate among anybody in humanity. Yep, that's the Antichrist. And we start with sign number one, which is the rapture of the church. If anybody says, is fill in the blank the Antichrist, the answer is, I can't tell you because the rapture hasn't taken place yet. Once the rapture takes place, then the world stage is set that the Antichrist can't exist. Now, if somebody says, could the Antichrist be alive today, right now, this very moment, March of, of 2019, and the answer is absolutely yes. Because if the rapture takes place this afternoon or tomorrow or next year, obviously the Antichrist is not a baby. It doesn't track his birth uh, like the, the Damien movies did back in the 1970s. That's not how it works. When the rapture happens, he's an adult and assumes power as an adult. He doesn't grow into the role with Satan's tutelage. So the, re the rapture of the church is, is what Paul puts as the predicate for the Antichrist. We see this in his introduction to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. He says in the first little phrase, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask your brothers do not be, do not be eas easily upset in mind or trouble. I highlighted the phrases he mentions with the conjunction. And when he says the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is referring to, he could refer to one of the two, either the coming of him who we meet in the air. Most likely he's referring to the second coming when he comes to the earth. And the conjunction, and our being gathered to him, shows that he's referring to the rapture and not just the second coming because it's our being gathered to him as what we've already seen in his first letter to Thessalonica about the, the being caught up in, the rapture of the church to him. So when he says concerning us being gathered to him, when the dead rise first and then the rest of the believers join him in the sky, he says, do not be easily upset in mind or troubled. So what he's talking about here is when we're gathered with him in the rapture, there's a period of the tribulation for seven years, and then his coming again is the second coming. So as we talked about earlier, that's the timeline of the end times. But then he comments on how there are false teachers in his day, and there are false teachers in our day about how do you interpret what Christ said and what's in our Bible on this issue. Paul gets to that in verse 2. He says, do not be upset in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. So when he talks about in spirit, that's someone who shows up and says, I've had a vision. God's given me a private revelation. I've got a new word from on high for you. 
anybody says that, run. They are a cult. They are a false teacher. That is dangerous as almighty. If somebody says, I've got a word from God, I got one answer. Which book, which chapter, and which verse? Because that's the only word from God that matters because if it's not there, it's highly, highly suspect. Or he says, by a message. The word here in Greek is better translated rumor. Somebody says, I heard something and I'm going to relay it to you. I heard a preacher talking about this and I can't remember his name, but let me tell you what he said. It's kind of wild, right? Paul says, danger, danger, be careful. Or he says, by a letter as if from us. And I mentioned to you last week, that was the reason he wrote this book. Somebody signed a letter, Paul, and told them the day they were living in was the great tribulation talked about by Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives, signed it, your brother, Paul, and put him into a tizzy. Paul writes this letter, signs it in his own big pencil markings, and at the very end is going to say, look, I signed this myself. This is really me, not that lie you got last month. And so this issue of false teachers, Paul is saying, we got to beware of. So how do you figure out what's true? And the answer is, does it track identically what is in Genesis through Revelation? If it differs, if it's not in Genesis through, Revel Genesis through Revelation, then it's highly suspect. If it's identical to it uh, and substantially, substantially similar to it, then you can draw some inferences from it. Otherwise, be careful of very, very false teachers. So he says, point number one, look from the rapture of the church and particularly, I would say, in our day, our day and age, for those that deny the existence of the rapture of the church, that would be a false teacher. And you can say, my Bible says something different in multiple places, and so I'm going to continue to believe in a rapture because I think that's what Christ taught. I think that's what the rest of my Bible teaches. So the lesson for us is beware of false teachers, but the sign of the coming of the Antichrist is we're going to have a rapture first. Number two, cultural sign is a culture that rejects the truth. It's funny that every year I teach this, this becomes more and more applicable. Today I can preach this and people are like, yep, we're living there. They said the same thing last year, the same thing 10 years ago, the same thing 20 years ago. As long as I teach this becomes more and more true because that's the culture that we live in. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day, the day of the tribulation, will not come unless a falling away comes first. So on your outline, I put a falling away. What he's referring to when he, use, when he uses the Greek word apostasy is a rejection, a widespread global rejection of the truth of God. Folks, that's the day that we live in. Yes, there are still believers. Yes, we still have church. Yes, we still have Christian influence around the world. But with every passing day, more and more people mock and reject the truth of God. I put as a second bullet point uh, the, the actual word in English that is the actual word in Greek, which the King James Version just literally transliterates. And this is the exact same verse in the King James, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So you look for the rapture, 
And what's the sign of the coming of the rapture? Because these things are going to take place in immediate proximity. It's a day when there is a widespread rejection of the word of God. Cross-reference that I do not have on your outline, but you may want to write down because it is my favorite verse to describe the day we live in. This is today, 2 Timothy verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. When Paul's writing, looking into the future, he's describing our day. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. When major denominations major Christian American denominations consider Genesis 1 through 9 a fable. We are there. And massive, massive mainstream denominations with multiple churches within 10 miles of where we are right now have rejected Genesis 1 through 9 as a fable. Massive American denominations with pastors within 10 miles of where we are do not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the atonement of Jesus Christ, or the judgment of sin. It is a culture and a world where even modern mainstream Christian denominations are gutting the Bible and saying it's for social justice, it's a higher truth, it makes us better people, but they're gutting the essence and the distinctives of the Christian faith. And so what you've got in culture is you've got a doctrinal issue and you've got a personal issue. The doctrine issue is basically what my little cartoon on the screen shows of saying uh, the steps down to apostasy or the steps down to atheism. Are, if, I don't know if you can read this or not, but the steps are the Bible's not infallible, man is not made in God's image, so you can do anything you want. There are no miracles, just ignore the miracles as something they wrote after the fact. There was no virgin birth, Christ was a man, he's not a deity, there's no atonement, Christ didn't die for all man's sins, there was no resurrection, it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's where we are today. And I don't want to name names or I run the risk of insulting a church someone was born into or you still have family attending, but there are major American Christian denominations that are multiple steps down this ladder. Multiple, major, mainstream denominations. Uh, and so we've got to be very, very carefully because once that doctrine is abandoned, then people look at it and they go, well, why should I waste time doing that? The Christian church in Europe is a picture of where we're going to be in 20 to 30 years if we stay on our current track, which is you go into these incredible cathedrals all across Europe, and they're nothing more than a tourist destination. When I go to a cathedral in any country in Europe, when I'm traveling for my work, if I go in, it can be a cathedral that can literally seat five to 10,000 people and from most of my experience over the last 20 years, church service is 100 people or less in the little choir up front, the vast majority of whom are over the age of 75 or tourists. And that's it. 
no young people, no young marrieds, no kids. It's total abandonment, and that's the culture that we're going to, and that's the implications of the doctrine. That is where many people have observed we are today and going in America. Headline from Newsweek from a decade ago was the decline and fall of Christian America. From seven years ago, Time Magazine, What If There Is No Hell, an interview on a Christian pastor named Rob Bell and a new book that he wrote then that now he's even gone deeper on. And so in our culture, people have noticed we're not a Christian America anymore. So that's the denominational issue. The second point I wanted to make here was just simply one of the personal issue, and it's the personal issue of untruth. The problem we have in our culture today, and this has become as big of a problem for the conservatives as it is for the liberal, it's as big of a problem for the right as it is for the left, and it is the combination of the concepts of opinion and truth. And we now live where both sides of political ideology and religious debate has supplanted the concept of truth with opinion, and you now just have talking heads giving their opinions, and what you watch and what you read is simply a choice of which opinion do I want to follow. And we've got a complete abrogation of truth. I've gotten to the point where I'm not going to read either one of them or watch either one of them because I don't care what their opinions are. I just want to know what the facts are, and I'll reach my own opinion. So that's a little bit harder to find these days, but what I tell, encourage people to do is do not stand for untruth. The focus ought to be on truth. We live in a culture that because it tolerates opinion over truth and because opinion can be loose and flexible and there's not much outrage over opinion, uh, we've got crazy opinions being asserted on both sides of any debate you want to get to, and you've got a complete abrogation of truth. So I think you ought to filter opinion uh, with ideas of truth versus untruth, whether you agree with it or not. Just look at the facts, and that ought to be the focus that we have as Christians, because otherwise, if we as Christians fall into the same debate of simply expressing opinion, then there is no difference between you and anybody else because your opinion is no different than theirs. But if the discussion is on truth, and you can get undebatable truths, then you can have a discussion that can move somebody to one side or the other, because otherwise opinions are never going to change. So point number one is a rapture. Point number two is a culture that rejects truths and fall away from God's word. Number three is the biggie. Number three is the removal of the restrainer. And the restrainer comes from uh, what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, now, you know what restrains him, that's the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. Now, I want you to see what's being described here. It says we've got the workings of lawlessness in Paul's day. That means bad stuff is happening. Paul's saying this is building where there's opposition to Christianity. Get used to it. But he says right now there's something restraining that lawlessness that Satan and his forces are dying to break out. 
and it describes it in both a what and a who. And I highlighted in gold what it is. It describes it initially as the impersonal what that restrains him. Then it gets a little more specific and it says the one as opposed to the thing. And then he gets real, real specific in verse 7, and he says, until he, that's the what that's restraining him, is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. So, debates over time in what this restrainer is. It's been described as Nero. Well, that's contradictory because the other half of the world thought Nero was the Antichrist, and so Nero can't be the restrainer. There's no evidence of that. The second thought may be, well, it's government. Government restrains evil, and so government's going to be removed. Well, the problem is there's no theological basis believing government's ever removed until Christ comes and rules, so that doesn't work. Uh, there's thought that the restrainer is Satan, that somehow Satan's going to be removed, and Satan's an angel of light, and he's masquerading, but the problem there is that's inconsistent with the Bible because Satan's not judged until the very, very end. There's other discussion, and a whole lot of our Catholic brethren believe this one, that the restrainer is the archangel Michael. And Michael's going to be told to pull back and let the Antichrist take over. The problem is nowhere else in Scripture is Michael described in any way as thwarting evil on a global scale. Michael is awesome, but he's not that awesome. So, let's look at what the Bible says about what could possibly be the restrainer. I gave you a couple of verses here. First one, Genesis chapter 3, 6. In Genesis 3, God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be uh, 120 years. So, when it uses the word strive in Hebrew, it means walk with or protect or hold. So my spirit shall not walk with or hold man forever. So it gives an inference that he's walking with the earth and holding man, and it says that's not going to last forever. I gave you the cross-reference from Job 1. If you want to read Job 1, as most of you probably have, it describes Satan as saying, I want to mess with Job, but I can't, God, until you give me permission to really, really mess with him. And God says, okay, I'll let you mess with him to prove a point to you, Satan, but you still can't do certain things to him. You can't hurt his health. And so there's a picture in Job of Satan not being able to touch anybody unless God gives permission to touch anybody. John chapter 4, Christ is talking about his return and what's going to happen after his return to heaven. He says, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. In Acts chapter 2, it's the reference to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells all believers, and the Holy Spirit has indwelt all believers from the moment of their conversion since the time of Pentecost. John writes in his book later in life, 1 John chapter 2, uh, he writes these things about to you are being led astray. He says in verse 27, As for you, the anointing you received from him, in other words, that your conversion remains in you, 
You don't need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and his anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. So verse 27 says, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. So I give you all of these verses to describe the significance of the rapture. Because if the Holy Spirit resides in the heart of every believer, and your biblical worldview is there's a moment in time in the blink of an eye, like a thief in the night, when we are called up into the sky to meet Jesus Christ, what happens to the Holy Spirit in this world? It goes with us. And the Holy Spirit, the restraining force, is gone. The Christians in government, the Christians in the neighborhood, the Christians in the world that stand up and say, that's wrong. Or the Holy Spirit at work in the world, even among a non-believer, that says, that is wrong, or that is right, or that is good, and that is bad, evaporates. Now, we're going to talk in a minute about what that means in terms of God's presence. Don't take that as... as God withdrawing, but the Holy Spirit withdraws, the restrainer withdraws, and I believe that is why the coming of the Antichrist, Paul very clearly puts with the rapture, because he starts chapter 2 talking about the rapture, he talks about the world we're going to live in, and then he says the great restrainer is going to go away. The great restrainer goes away during the time of the rapture, and that unleashes the Antichrist to wreak havoc upon the world. So let's transition to him. The revelation of the Antichrist is the next section of your outline, and section 4 says you know he's going to show up when he shows up. And that sounds kind of redundant, but let's talk about it. Number 1, what's his name? Verse 3 says, For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. In terms of his name, the man of lawlessness, I found this week in my research 25 different names for the Antichrist, Old Testament and New Testament. I got up here the top 10, I think, is what's on this list. The name Antichrist we get from 1 John 1, 2 but it describes man of sin, son of perdition. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The lawless one, which Paul uses here, the beast, king of Babylon, the little horn, the prince to come, the willful king. It describes it all kinds of different ways. It's all describing the same dude. The guy that's going to run things that is the worst ruler the world's ever seen, but the world is deluded into thinking he's the greatest ruler they've ever seen, and it's going to be awful. What's he going to be like? What is his character? To get his character, I want to use a slightly different translation of the exact same verse because it's good in application. The King James Version is the exact same verse I just gave you, but the King James Version translates lawlessness as sin, and it translates son of destruction, son of perdition. I use this as a description of his character because I know of no greater description of his character as characterized by sin, which is a self-centered rejection of God the Father. And son of perdition was a nice way in Shakespearean English to say a son of hell. It's a son of Hades. A son of hell is the description of what this guy is. 
when Paul uses his phraseology and, and the literal transliteration we have of man of, of no law, if you're just going to literally translate Paul, it's the coming one is a man of no law, and he's going to be in charge of government. I think that means three things in terms of how he lives his life and rules. Number one, no moral law. If he's the antithesis of Christ, it's anything you want, anytime you want, as long as it gives you pleasure, other people's rights no longer matter. It's a human right free-for-all as, as, as long as it gives you pleasure. Number two, civil law, but more specifically civil rights. At this point, because there is no moral law and you can no longer say this is right and this is wrong, at this point, every minority and every minority belief gets crushed into non-existence. If you are marginalized in society, there is no longer a way to protect you because this guy is going to say whoever you are or whatever you believe in is bankrupt and we're just not going to do it. So there's no ability to stand up for civil rights in a, in a race sense. There's no ability to stand up for civil rights in a religious sense. The absence of the Holy Spirit means all of those things go away. And then God's law at this point becomes laughable. Right, Any idea of Old Testament or New Testament ideology and what's right and what's wrong goes out the window because as we'll see in a minute, this guy's going to set himself up as God. His nature, I've broken down in a couple of different ways to kind of describe to you how it's possible to put somebody in this position. Because as soon as you look at this, most people start saying, wait a minute, this is now getting to fantasy land. There's too many checks and balances in our world to allow that to happen. Number one, how could you get it ruling the United States? How could you get it culminating all of Europe together? They can't even function in the EU properly. How can you get the Chinese to work with the Arabs? How can you get the Arabs to work with right? Your mind just starts raising issues. This can't happen. Yes, it can. Scripture tells us how. Number one, charismatic. I don't mean that in a worship sense. I mean it in terms of a ideological sense. He says in verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself among every so-called God or object of worship. That's a Paul way of saying every other religion this guy puts himself on top of. When Paul uses the phrase so-called God or object of worship, in our culture that would include Hindu, Buddhist, Islam, snake worshiper, you name it, anything under the sun, big or small, he's saying, other than Yahweh God, he's going to put himself on top of. He's going to go on and say he's going to put himself on top of Yahweh God, and I'll explain that in a minute, but he starts by saying, for the rest of the world, I am, the, I am greater than all of these things. Now, Daniel gives us some insight into how that would happen. Daniel 7, which I put on your outline, says his mouth speaks arrogantly. Right, Because when you hear that in our culture, you say, yep, that's pretty arrogant. In his culture, you look at that and say, it must be really, really arrogant. Daniel 7.25, he will intend to change religious festivals and laws. Now, remember the world in which this guy pops up in. Every Christian is just vanished without explanation. Governments are now empty in the Western world with pockets of people still remaining. Airplanes aren't flying on time. The trains aren't working on time. The highway system isn't working on time. Local government isn't working. You've got a vacuum of leadership 
that this guy steps into and says, on a global basis, I'll fix this. And we're going to start with religious festivals and laws. Revelation 13, it says, A mouth was given to him to speak boasts and blasphemies. That means when, it, when John uses that in Revelation, boast and blasphemies, to blaspheme is to blaspheme God Almighty. That's not a reference to Muhammad. That's not a reference to Buddha or Confucius. When it says blasphemy, that's a reference to God Almighty. So it says he speaks down to, puts himself over God Almighty. So he becomes a charismatic leader in a time of crisis. Next point, he becomes a cultic leader. By cultic leader, I'm meaning people follow him when it doesn't really make sense. Uh, Paul tells us that in verse 4. It says he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, uh, it tells us at the very end of Daniel chapter 9, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and offering. In Revelation chapter 6, it says he puts himself on the throne in Jerusalem. So as a part of what happens in the rapture, as a part of what happens in the great instability, he finds himself in a position to do what in our culture is unthinkable, and that is the Dome of the Rock is no longer considered sacred, and the temple is rebuilt on top of the Dome of the Rock. A Jewish audience not involved in the rapture that have somebody show up and say, I'm going to rebuild the temple, suddenly got the adoration of every single Jew in the known world. Now, there's a whole bunch of speculation about what can happen in terms of Islamic war or conflict leading up to the rapture, and I don't have time to speculate on all of that, but it's going to happen. And so this is a picture of the infrastructure on top of the Dome of the Rock. That's a recreation of what the Dome actually, or what the, the new temple would actually look like. But I don't think it necessarily is exclusively meaning that this lawless one sits inside the tabernacle itself. He can, but remember, the rapture's taken place, and you still have churches all across the Western world, including America. I think what this means is this guy sets himself up not only as the religious leader with a temple in Jerusalem, but for every remaining church in the known world. Whether it's Western, whether it's Eastern, if there is a Christian church, the true believers in Jesus Christ are gone and you've got a bunch of really expensive, semi-empty buildings that this guy can now make a place of worship for himself and his form of government because there's nobody to say you're wrong. There's nobody to say you're the Antichrist. There's nobody left to say you're the, the evil one, uh, and there's nothing to stand in his way. He will do this by being a clever leader. Second Thessalonians tells us that he'll do it with false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with unrighteous deception. The book of the Revelation expands on this and says, with Satan's power, he will do that which appears to be miraculous. The ability to heal an illness or pretend to heal an illness. The ability to pretend to raise someone from the dead that's just unconscious. Uh, to, to do signs and wonders with nature to do magic, to do things that people say, wow, this guy must have a supernatural connection to whatever spiritual world is out there. We've got to listen to this guy. 
Daniel tells us he's going to do it by seizing the kingdom, basically the world, by intrigue. And when Daniel uses the word intrigue, the Hebrew word means magic. It means something that's a sleight of hand or a sleight of eye that is done to deceive the world into following him uh, that's going to be through his clever tactics uh, done as the puppet of Satan. But he's going to be a cruel leader, and cruel we see in Thessalonians verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, it says, for those who are perishing, they perish. If we cross-reference, which I put on your outline, is Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, those two chapters use identical symbols to describe world government, to describe a progression up to the Antichrist, to describe one, describe one who blasphemes God the Father, who persecutes all believers, and who rules for seven years. It tracks them almost identically in how it describes them and their government and the things that lead to it. But the thing in common from Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 is the leader kills people. It's persecution if you don't fall in line. It's death if you don't have his mark on your body. Uh, and it is massive persecution unless you are a worshiper and an idolizer of him who is the puppet of Satan. And I describe him as a counterfeit leader because Paul says in verses 11 and 12, this happens because of a strong delusion. So God gives all people in the world who are left the false idea, this guy's got the answers. The false idea that you no longer need national government, it's okay to have one leader because this guy can do magic and can pretend to do the same miracles that Christ did. And it says they believe, which is false. So this guy to the Jewish world sets himself up as the Messiah, and that's a lie. To the Muslims, this guy sets himself up as the return of Muhammad, and that's a lie. To any world belief system, it says he's got a lie for them to believe, to get them to fall into line and to believe whatever lie he has to believe in order for them to accept that as truth. Now, the fifth sign at this point, and at this point, it's really too late for anything because it's the second coming of Christ. And Paul says that in verse 8 when he says, The Lord Jesus will destroy him, the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. So tie this into Revelation. Christ shows up. And I think when it says the breath of his mouth is him yelling, Stop. Or him yelling, no, or him yelling, end, or him yelling, to let's die, it's finished, or whatever word is going to end it. And one word, one breath ends it, and in his appearance, Satan and his leader and his puppet are gone in an instant. It's simultaneous judgment with the return of Christ. Now, the book of Revelation goes into deeper detail and how it happens and what it looks like and all the other details. Remember, Paul's preaching to the equivalent of elementary school kids. So he's not going as deep as John goes in Revelation, but he's saying it's going to come with one breath and at the brightness of his coming, it all ends. And then uh, there is retribution on, oh, sorry, the return of the Lord. I cross-referenced Matthew 24. He's coming again. I cross-referenced Acts 1. He's coming again. The sixth and final sign is the retribution on evil, the final judgment. 
And we get this in verse 12 of 2 Thessalonians 2, where it says all should be all, I mean, inferentially, it's all remaining. All of those following the Antichrist will be condemned. Those who do not believe the truth, but enjoyed unrighteousness. So those who believe the truth are not condemned. They're in heaven uh, with the Father and with Christ. And so his retribution on evil, we see multiple Old Testament references to. I gave you the cross-reference to Matthew 13. Those who commit lawlessness, eventually they're going to get judged. 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, God is holding off ultimate judgment until the final day of judgment. And then Revelation 19 gives us the whole picture of judgment. Christ comes back and there is ultimate judgment on all people at all times. Now, this particular judgment... I'm going to teach you in depth later when Paul is going to talk about this to the church at Corinth because Paul's going to go deeper with a more mature body and when Paul goes deeper with his church, I'll go deeper with you guys but for now, just kind of put the chronological story together. Now, I want to end with the question that I got asked this week as I was preparing this and that as I started doing more research, I was kind of shocked at the number of theologians that I would call conservative that held to this view. And it's the question of after the rapture, before the second coming of Christ, during the reign of the Antichrist, during the great tribulation, can anybody be saved? There is a belief among some that the, the age of grace is over and nobody else can be saved. The problem is I don't think that's consistent with Scripture for a couple of reasons. Number one, because the Holy Spirit is gone does not mean God is gone. My father reminded me of this when I asked him this question. God is still on the planet, and the book of Revelation makes clear this is not God taking off his hands and saying, let anarchy run amok. It's God allowing to happen the things Revelation outlines because the Holy Spirit is removed does not mean God is removed. So with God's presence and the Holy Spirit with God like he was in Old Testament days, you can still have believers. Number two, the book of Revelation says 144,000 Jews become the equivalent of Billy Graham. So that obviously involves a Jewish conversion of some small percentage of living Jews at the time. They become believers, and Revelation makes clear they're evangelical, they're preaching Jesus Christ, they're clearly converted after the rapture. As I told you two weeks ago, that's the uh-oh moment. When they look at all the Christians disappearing and they say, did we miss something? And the answer is yes, and 144,000 of them become converted. Uh, the third point is, the book of the Revelation describes tribulation saints. It describes people, for example, that don't get the mark of the beast because they believe in Jesus Christ and they see him for who they are. It describes other people that just simply don't worship and they are murdered for not worshiping the Antichrist. It then describes those tribulation saints as going from their death and tribulation to the throne of God, and it describes people moving from the tribulation after the rapture into the throne room of God and describes it in a way that to me very clearly indicates people became Christians during the tribulation period. Now, in terms of application, uh, at one level it's a little bit difficult because if you say... I'm not going to be here, so I'm not worried about the details. Uh, that's true. I don't sweat the Antichrist. I don't sweat the tribulation because I know without a shadow of a doubt, I and my family are not going to be there. Now, 
as Natalie reminded me a couple of days ago, what about our friends? We've got dear friends that are good people that we love spending time with, that I work with in other law firms, in other cities, in other places, and we're genuinely good friends. What about them? If you don't have a burden, if you don't have a crushing conviction to keep people out of what we just discussed, I venture to say you're too distracted by something else in life. It ought to be a crushing, overwhelming desire that our highest priority becomes telling people, please, I love you. I do not want to see you go through that. Whether that's a family member, whether that's a friend, if your heart is not burdened by telling somebody how to avoid this, I think it requires a whole lot of prayer and kind of reprioritizing life because if you're not burdened by that, then this means your heart's not being touched by the Holy Spirit because I guarantee the Holy Spirit's desire, as Scripture says, is that not one soul loses an opportunity to hear. Scripture makes it clear that God's desire is for all men and all people, even though we know that some simply aren't going to believe. So with that, uh, we end up our study of the end times for this church. In First and Second Corinthians, he's going to go deeper. In Romans, he's going to touch on some of it again. In some of our later letters, he's going to touch on it when he gets into uh, writing his pastoral epistles once he's in prison. Uh, and so in our next lesson, we're going to talk about the last couple of verses and chapters here. The end of chapter 2, all of chapter 3, he says to that church, now that we've got our doctrine settled, how are you going to live from here on out? And that's how we're going to finish Thessalonians. And then once we're done with Thessalonians, we're going to get back to the missionary journeys, and he's going to go on and leave Corinth and go on to other places, and I think you're going to enjoy that as well. Uh, as I said, if you've got questions about this, ask the true expert that wrote the book, my dad. Uh, I'll answer them, but odds are I'm going to tell you to go talk to him. Uh, but uh, between the two of us, hopefully we can answer all your questions. Uh, thanks so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed our study of the end times. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to study your word. We just stand in awe at how timely it is, how it just seems like at any moment with the culture that we live in that this could happen. And Father, we believe it's true. And because of that truth, because of the world that we live in, we ask that you would burden our hearts with one person this week that without our involvement, we can't be at peace that they've had one more chance to hear about you, to hear your word, and to make a difference that may be eternal significance in their lives. We can't do that with anyone without the working of the Holy Spirit without your plan for who you want us to give that message to. So we just ask for your discernment, for your open doors, to give us one chance this week to share with one person that God is real and Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And for that opportunity, we thank you. For that opportunity, we ask that you strengthen us. For that opportunity, we thank you in advance for the chance to share you with someone who needs it. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at BiblicalFoundationsBibleStudy.com All rights reserved.